This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Okay, everybody, we're going to get started again. That's pretty cool, huh, getting a free book at GYC? Not bad. Get a free book and a blessing. We'll have some of them at the Peace Booth as well. Don's going to put some on the Peace Booth also, so you can drop by there. And uh... Oh, yeah, it is bad. What number are we? I don't know. We're stuck in the corner somewhere. Uh, as you go in, you know there's two sides? We're on the left side in the corner. Yeah. We're next to, in, we're op- opposite, um, what's his name? Uh, White Horse. Wahlberg. We're opposite him. Um, and we have some peace hoodies if you want. I've only got eight left. If you, any of you want any? Seven, because my sister here in the front is going to get one. And like, you know, at peace we have three people on our team. There's myself, there's Craig, and there's a, a lady called um, Beulah. She's on our team as well. And we were planning to get these hoodies. And we're like, oh, let's get them blue. Let's get this. Let's that. And she's like, you can do whatever you want, she said. But just make sure whatever hoodie you get. She's like, I'm not going to wear them. But whatever hoodie you get, make sure there's a zip on it. I said, why? She said, for the ladies. So they don't mess their hair up. <laughs> so the hoodies all have zips, ladies. <laughs> um. We have a few more left, so if you want to come by and uh, check out Peace, then you're more than welcome to. Well, we kind of went over on that one, but uh, I think we'll get through what we need to get through and finish up so you can get over to the plenary session on time as well. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we get started. Father in heaven, Lord, we pause for a moment. We want to thank you and pray, Lord, that your spirit may be with us once again. Guide us, direct us, speak through me, and speak to our hearts. We ask in your name. Amen. Okay, detours and redemption. As I've done with all my presentations, I'm going to start with this quotation where it says, when persons yield their will, in perfect submission to the will of God, and the Spirit is humble and teachable, the Lord will correct them by His Holy Spirit and lead them into where? Safe paths. There's a couple of quotations that I want to start that maybe don't go exactly along with the theme of detours and redemption, but they do go along with the general theme of knowing God's will for our lives. Knowing God's will... And our will, getting the two of them to match. And I want to read a few quotations from, uh, from the Spirit of Prophecy that deal with the will of man. Some of them are very encouraging, and I believe they will give us some encouragement. Before I go to the next slide, and this, this, this quotation, in a sense, is not for everybody. But it's one that's always stood out in my mind. It's in particular related to those who are in leadership positions or may have some position of responsibility. How many of you have ever been in a position of responsibility where you've had to make up a decision and under the pressure of the moment, you don't know what to do? If I do this, then these 10 people will think that of me If I do this, these 10 people said that will happen. But if I do that, those five people will think that will happen. And you're like, you know what to do. And you're just kind of like, don't know what to do. And then you're waiting for enough feedback to hedge your bets to make, you know what I mean? And, you know, the pressure of the moment can get to us. There's a quotation in Ellen White's writings where where she says, you know, she warns against hesitancy in making decisions. Now, I want to be careful. I'm not saying this applies to every situation. 
Because there are some decisions or a lot of decisions that you need to make in life, such as life partner, job, career, mission experience, etc., where you need to weigh all the evidence very carefully. Amen? So this quotation is in particular for those that may be in leadership positions and only in particular situations. Have I made that clear? Yes. This is not for, you know, every situation. She says the quotation is, hesitant leadership is weak leadership. And this is quite strong. She says, it is even more excusable to make a wrong decision sometimes than to be continually in a wavering position. Now, like I said, this is referring to leadership. It's in the book Christian Leadership. This is not talking about when you're choosing a life partner. Amen? Not at all. Not at all. Mm -mm. To be hesitating, sometimes inclined in one direction, then another, more perplexity and wretchedness result from thus hesitating and doubting than from sometimes moving too hastily. I have been shown that the most signal victories and the most fearful defeats have been on the turn of minutes. There's a famous quotation about Napoleon where it says, you know, he, 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 he was you know, such a great military leader because he understood the value of five minutes. God requires promptness of action, delays, doubtings, hesitation, and indecision frequently, not always, give way to the enemy having advantage. And once again, this is referring to those in leadership positions that you may have decisions to make. And uh, sometimes, she says, it's worse to hesitate than it is to go forward with something. Okay? So I hope you find that helpful. Those of you that, that it may apply to your context, it's Gospel Workers, page 134. Okay? Governing power in the nature of man. Notice what she says here in 5 Testimonies 5.1.3. The will is the what? Governing power in the nature of man. What has God given to every single one of us? The power of choice. Or another way of saying the power of choice is will or free will. So we all have the power of choice. We all have free will. Uh, the will is the governing power in the nature of man, bringing all the other faculties under its sway. The will is not the taste or the inclination, but it is the deciding power which works in the children of men unto obedience to God or unto disobedience. That's what drives us, the will. The will. You may have heard this quotation, everything depends on the right action of the will. The tempted one needs to understand the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man. The power of decision of choice. Everything, she says, depends on the right action of the will. That's the one thing God has given to us, the, the power of choice. Desires for goodness and purity are right as far as they go. But if we stop here, they avail nothing. Many will go down to ruin while hoping and desiring to overcome evil propensities. They do not yield the will to God. They choose. They do not choose to serve him. Things depend on the right action of our will. Notice here, two elements of character. Strength of character consists of two things, the power of will and the power of self-control. Many youth mistake strong, uncontrolled passion for strength of character. Oh, he and she's a strong, a strong person. It may just be that they, you know, have uncontrolled passion, but they're not really a strong person. Most strong people that look strong fall the hardest in life. The truth is that he who is mastered by his passions is a weak man. The real greatness and nobility of the man is measured by the power of feelings he subdues. Not by the power of feelings that subdue him. The strongest man is he who, while sensitive to abuse, will yet restrain passion and forgive his enemies. Such men are true heroes. How do you want to be a hero today? Amen. You don't want passions to overrule you, but you want to be able to subdue them. All of these things play a part in making decisions. They play a part in seeking God's will for our life. And this one here is one of the most powerful promises that you find there in the book Christ's Object Lessons, where it says, as the will of man 
cooperates with the will of God, it becomes what? And the word omnipotent is a fancy way of saying what? All-powerful. So as your will cooperates with God's will, it becomes omnipotent. Why? Because his strength is made perfect in your weakness. Whatever is done at his command may be accomplished by his strength. And then she says, all his biddings are enablings. As God bids us to follow him, he enables us with the power to do so. Amen? These are a few quotations that, that, that relate to the will of man that is so important in making decisions. That's so important in finding God's will and implementing God's will in our lives. As the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent. And all his biddings are our enablings. Okay, if you have a Bible, you may want to turn to Daniel. We're going to look at a few verses in Daniel. But this subject is called detours and redemption. I believe God has a plan for every single one of your lives. How many of you believe that? Truly believe that. Hands up. How many of you can honestly say hand on heart? Not yet. <laughs> yeah, no, this is a new question. Sorry. Can honestly say hand on heart that every time God has revealed his will to you, you have followed it. Okay? So we're all a pretty rebellious people, amen? So there's no reason for any of us to think we're better than the other or worse than the other. Establish a level playing field. How many of you feel, though, that as you look back, God had this plan for your life, which you didn't do. You ended up doing this, but you still came round here. God is gracious, amen? God is redemptive. You see, I mean, to use one of a better term, it could be said that God may have a primary will for your life. Or in a situation, God has his plan A. This is what I really want my child to do. But you're stubborn, I'm stubborn, and I don't listen. I don't listen. Don't listen to that, don't listen to that, don't listen to that. And I don't follow that, so God says, okay. Here's plan B. I'll give you a plan B. And some will say, okay, I'll follow plan B. And it's not, and to use the word primary and secondary, you know, can indicate to us in our minds that one is better than the other. Or that plan B is not as good as plan A. And it may not be that case at all. I'm just using it in terms of maybe the time he comes to you in that order. I had a friend of mine that went to Arise in 2005, no, six, seven. He goes to Arise in 2007 and comes back to his church. He's on fire, like some of you may be after GYC or whatever mission school you're going to go to. Peace, amen. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, goes back to his church and says, I want to do Bible study training. And here he is, a 29- or 8-year-old guy, saying, I want to train the church to do Bible studies. Guess what the church said? This is a church with 500 members. It's a big church. It's not this little church. Guess what the church said? They didn't say we don't need it. They said what oftentimes happens in big churches. They said, well, let's have a look at the calendar. When they looked at a calendar, they saw there was a Pathfinder Rally Day. They saw there was a Women's Ministry Day. They saw there was a Religious Liberty Day. They saw there was an evangelistic campaign. They saw there was a church retreat. They saw there was this, 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 this. And the whole year was full. Friday night was choir practice. Wednesday night was prayer meeting. Sabbath evening was this. And Sunday was this. And you don't get the picture. 
If there's no time, we can't do Bible study training. Now, he didn't go and start a rallying campaign against the pastor. He didn't start a whispering campaign about how this pastor wasn't called of God. And he didn't call the conference office and write letters to them complaining about the pastor. He said, okay, fine, can't do it in church. He said, where can I do it? Because I want to do it. But he had no other building to go to except his mom's living room. So he says to his mom, can I use your living room Friday night? Sure. She was a Christian woman, no problem. He notified the church what he was doing. He wasn't kind of, you know, making his plans in smoke-filled rooms. Told them what he was doing. They said, okay, fine. And every Friday night, 10 to 15 people had Bible study training in his living room. You know? By the end of it, they trained 10, 15 people in how to give Bible studies. They gave Bible studies. They had baptisms and so on, so on and so forth. And eventually, the church said, oh, do the training back in the church. You know? And when they, did, when they said to him to do that, he didn't say, no, I'm sorry, I came to you one time already, and that was your one chance in life. <laughs> he said, okay, I'll take the training back into church. You see, what you may think is plan A may not always be plan A. It may have been that God wanted to just test him to see how dedicated or devoted he is to do what he said he would do. It may not even have anything to do with the pastor or the church or any of those things that we would naturally say, oh, the pastor's this and the church is that and all that stuff. It may simply be, I just want to try this young man out here to see if he really is committed to do what he wants to do. And by doing that, taking it to the living room, he was able to be a witness to his brothers who don't go to church, who would see that every Friday, and his mother was blessed as well. So you see how something that looks like a detour... And in our minds, we would say, well, that's not really the first thing I want to do. It still comes around, and it's redemptive. Amen? So sometimes there is a primary, sometimes maybe a secondary. When man was created, do you think it was the plan of God that man would be sinful? No, it wasn't. When man was created... Was it God's original plan that Eve would eat the apple and Adam would eat it as well and they would be plunged into sin? Was that God's plan originally for mankind? Yes or no? No, it wasn't. God's first plan for man was that he would create man, live in the garden, everything would be fine. There was a test there in the garden of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it wasn't God's original plan that we would sin. But when man did sin, did God have a backup plan, yes or no? He had a backup plan. Is the backup plan going to bring, bring redemption, yes or no? It will still bring redemption. In fact, I believe there's, there's a quotation. It's just coming to my mind right now. It's not a phantom quote. It is in there somewhere. Where she says that because of the plan of redemption that was put in place after man fell, because of Jesus becoming our brother, I believe, I know she says, that we, are, we will be in heaven closer to Christ than if we had never sinned. So what looks like a plan B is going to end up being better than plan A. Amen? Some of you may be living plan B, C, or D in your lives right now. Some of you may be on X, Y, or Z. <laughs> you know? Some of you may be really stubborn. Who knows? But it doesn't mean that because you're on plan X or P or Q or Z that it's like 25 times worse than plan A what it could have been. It could be that whatever plan you're on in, in life is going to end up being 10 times better because God is a merciful God. What about God's original plan for Israel? What does the Bible say was his original plan for Israel? 
Genesis chapter 12, turn in your Bibles, Genesis 12. God's original plan for Israel, and then we're, and then we're going to go to Daniel. You were already in Daniel, weren't you? Yeah. Anyway, let's just go here quickly. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1 to 5. What was God's original plan for Israel? Genesis 12. This was Abraham, or Abram as he is called in this chapter. He says, get you out of your country and from your kindred and from your father's house unto a land I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless them that bless you and curse him that curse you and in you shall all families of the earth be what? Blessed. When you go over to Exodus chapter 19, again, God says to Israel, I want you to, you know, fly. How does it go? I want you to, you know, rise up like, 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 like on eagle's wings. And God's original plan for Israel was that through the nation of Israel, he would bless the world. It wasn't God's plan that the Israelites would have a monopoly on salvation. That's sometimes how we preach it, that like, you know, up until the year AD 34. At the end of the 490-year prophecy, salvation was for the Israelites. And after that, it went to the Gentiles. No, 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 no. It was God's plan that he would simply use the Jews as the primary vehicle to bless all the nations. And whatever he gave them, they were supposed to carry. How many cities of refuge were there in Israel? How many of you know? Six. Three on one side of the Jordan, three on the other side of the Jordan. It was not God's plan that there would remain six cities of refuge. There would be more built around the world as they took the gospel to the world. But because they didn't and they kept the gospel to themselves and never took it anywhere, what did God have to eventually do? Turn to Matthew 21. In Matthew chapter 21, what happens? Matthew 21 verse 33. And the reason why I believe you know that this, God was working with Israel is because in this parable it says, you know, that there was a man who had a vineyard. And he put a wine press in a tower and let it out to husband when it went to a far country. And the Bible says there in verse 34 and 35 that he sent one of his servants to the vineyard to check on it. And the Bible says they beat one, killed another, stoned another. Verse 36 says he sent another servant, and they did the likewise. And verse 37 says, last of all, he says, if I send my son, they will reverence my son. He is here describing the history of Israel. Here's Israel. Here's the vineyard. I've put these men to watch over the vineyard, but they're not doing a good job. So when it says he sent them a servant, it's like, Parable talk for saying he sent a prophet to Israel to get them back on track. They kill the prophet. He sends another one. They kill another one. He sends another one. They kill another one. And finally, he says, if I send my son, they'll listen to my son. What did he do to the son in the parable? They kill the son. So then what does Jesus say in verse, is it 42? In verse 42, verse 43, he says, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to another nation bearing the fruits thereof. I believe it was God's original plan that through Israel, he would bless the whole world. But because they did not listen to his plan, because they were hard-hearted and rebellious, then he said, okay, I'm taking the kingdom of heaven from you, giving it to another nation. Meaning the Gentiles will also now have the responsibility to take the gospel to the whole world. Amen? So God had plan A, didn't come to pass, but he had plan B. But how many think plan B is pretty good? It's pretty good, don't you? Why? Why do I think it's pretty good? Because I'm a Gentile. Are you a Gentile too? Maybe there's some of you here that have Jewish blood in you, I don't know. But my guess is most of us in this room are what the Bible would call a Gentile. We don't have Jewish blood in us. And yet the Bible says, if we are Christ's, then we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So all the promises given to Abraham, I can now be an inheritor of those promises as a Gentile. I have no Jewish blood in me. I'm from England, but I'm half Icelandic and half Mauritian. I'm a kind of a mixed up person. 
How many of you know where Mauritius is? Shame on the American school system. <laughs> you know? Anyway. How many of you know where Iceland is? You know where that is? It's at the top of the Atlantic. Anyway, mum from there, dad from there, they met in England and I came out. But I'm not Jewish. But I can be an inheritor of salvation, just like you can be. So I would suggest to you that even plan B was even actually maybe better for us than plan A. Worked out better in the long run. In Daniel chapter 1, I want to take you through Daniel chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. How many of you have studied the book of Daniel before? Yeah? What have you studied often when you study the book of Daniel? Daniel chapter 2. What prophecy is that? Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 7. What prophecy is in there? The four beasts and the little horn. That's often the chapters we study. And we often look at Daniel in Daniel chapter 6. What happens in Daniel 6? He goes into the lion's den. In Daniel chapter 3, what happens there? They go into the fiery furnace. But I want us to take a look at the book of Daniel for the, 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 the last, uh, what was it? The last 20 minutes or so we have in this, in this um, seminar this morning. And look at the book of Daniel through the eyes of God and Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? In Daniel chapter 1, what happens? Help me out. They're taken captive, Jerusalem besieged, they're taken captives, and they go to where? From, Bab from Jerusalem to Babylon. What does the king do to them when they get there? He changes their names from Daniel to Belteshazzar and so on. What else does he do to them? Changes their place where they're educated. What else does he try and do to them? He tries to change their, their diet. And what did Daniel and his friends say? They say, no. The Bible says in verse 8, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. And he goes to Mel, uh, is it Melzar? He goes to Melzar and says, uh, please give us 10 days. And, and he says, I can't give you 10 days. No, he says, I can't give you a new, new thing. You'll get killed. And he says, give us just a 10-day trial. And at the end of a 10-day trial, what happens? The Bible says they're fairer and fatter than all the other men. It's amazing if you change your diet for 10 days, you can actually see a physical change. So they change in 10 days. And then they're allowed to eat that way for the next three years while they're in school. I think this teaches us several things. That your diet and your mind are connected. They're not two separated things. The body, the mind, they work together. Healthy body, healthy mind. So for three years, they eat this different diet. The Bible says pulses and vegetables, I believe it says, or fruits and vegetables. Basically, they ate a plant-based, vegan, vegetarian diet for three years. Okay? Then what happens? Verse 19. At the end of the day is verse 18. The king brings them all in, and the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king communed with them, and among all of the men found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Imagine at the end of your three years of education, you have to go and stand before one man and just answer whatever questions he throws at you. Imagine that. You know, the way we take school today is we take a class and we take an exam. They had just one big exam at the end, stand in front of Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of that exam, what does he find? The Bible says, verse 20, in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. Ten times wiser. I would like to be ten times wiser than all of you. But I know I'm not. 
But imagine being 10 times wiser than every other wise man there is. Now, what we're showing here is God, in the book of Daniel, is using Daniel to give prophecies to his people in the world. But I believe, was it God's original plan for Israel to go to Babylon, yes or no? No. His plan was for them to listen to him so they didn't go into captivity. But when they did go into captivity, God says, okay, you've gone into captivity. You haven't listened to me. But what am I going to do? I'm going to try and bring something good out of this situation that would never have happened before. So what does he do? He uses Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to witness to Nebuchadnezzar. Do you think God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to be converted, yes or no? Of course he did. But Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked man. He was a bloodthirsty warrior that had killed many men in battle. But in Daniel chapter 1, what do we see? If we're looking at it through the eyes of God to Nebuchadnezzar, we see Nebuchadnezzar confronted with a reality he has never before seen. Never before seen. He's confronted by a God who is more powerful than anything he has seen. I believe God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to give his life to Jesus in Daniel chapter 1. It almost is like God was hoping that by seeing three, four men who are wiser than everyone else, ten times wiser, that that would be enough evidence for him to say, well, tell me something more. But it wasn't. We come to Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, run me through the story, what happens? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Then what happens to his dream? He doesn't just forget it. The Bible says in verse 1, his sleep left him. Which is another way of what we would say today is he had a nightmare. He wakes up, shook, can't remember his dream. Calls the wise men and says, wise men, got a job for you. Tell me what I dreamt. I say, king, this is how it's going to work. You tell us what you dreamt, we'll tell you what it means. He says, "Uh uh-uh, I pay your bills, I'll tell you how it works. (laughs) You tell me what I dreamt and what it means, otherwise I know you're liars. And they say to him, king, there is no one that can do that, except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. You could study that later sometime. So he says, okay, I'm going to kill all of you. Which if you were King Nebuchadnezzar, you would probably do the same thing too. Like I've been paying these guys for the last 20 years and they've been lying to me the whole time. So he gets angry and says, I'm going to kill all of you. So they come to Daniel's house. They knock on Daniel's door and say, hi, Daniel. Hey, good to see you. Yeah, we'll come to kill you. Why? Well, the king says that you all need to die. Because he's had a dream and no one can remember it. Okay, so, Daniel says, he goes into the king, where is it, it's verse, um, verse 15, 16, 17. And he says, king, give me some time. And the king says, okay, you can have some time. Because he really wanted to know what the dream was. So then what happens? The Bible says that Daniel and his friends, verse 18 and 19, they went home and they prayed. And the Bible says the secret was revealed to them in a night vision to Daniel. So Daniel goes back into the king there. Verse 24. The Bible says he goes back into the king who wanted to kill him. He brought him before the king, verse 25, in haste. The Bible says in verse 26, the king says, are you able to make known to me the interpretation? And verse 27, Daniel, and verse 28, he says, ah, the wise men can't tell you. But there is a God in heaven who can. And then he starts to tell him the dream. And you know the dream, or maybe you've don't know it, I don't know. He says, you saw a head of gold, breast and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. And then Daniel says, that is the dream. Now I'll tell you the interpretation. Would you have been impressed if you were Nebuchadnezzar? Wow. 
you just had a dream, and now this man repeats your dream in detail. And at the end of repeating the dream in detail, he has the confidence to say, that is the dream. Now I'll tell you the interpretation. He doesn't even say like you or I may have said, well, did I get it right? He just says, that is the dream. Now I'm going to tell you what, I, what it means. And he starts to say, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. The chest and arms of silver is another kingdom that comes after you, inferior to you. And then the third kingdom of, of bronze rules the whole world. Blah, 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 blah. And Nebuchadnezzar is spellbound as he stands there, jaw open. Wow. As this 21 or 2-year-old Hebrew captive, so that's the, how old he was, was standing in front of him, telling him exactly what he dreamt. It is pretty impressive, is it not? Now, I believe God did that. Partly just to flex his muscles and say, hey, I'm God. But the deeper reason, that's kind of the surface, the deeper reason is God was trying not to impress Daniel because Daniel already knew God. God was trying to get to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 1, it didn't work. So in Daniel chapter 2, he comes back around. He ups the pressure a little bit. And verse 46 and verse 48 Nebuchadnezzar says, he fell on his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should obtain, offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. The king said unto Daniel, of a truth, of a what? Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing that thou revealed this secret unto me. Then the king made Daniel great in his kingdom and gave him many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. In Daniel chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar sees a revelation that he's never seen before. In Daniel chapter 2, he sees it clear as crystal. And I believe God did it at this high tempo to do an experience that none of you or I probably have ever been to because he was trying to convert Nebuchadnezzar. And ultimately, God's plan for every single one of our lives is to convert all of our hearts. And so with Nebuchadnezzar, he's trying to convert his heart. And Nebuchadnezzar was a stubborn man like me and you, you and I may be stubborn as well. And so he ups the pressure. Dream, no dream, forget the dream, dream revealed, blah, blah, blah. And then Nebuchadnezzar, you could say in Daniel chapter 2, is convinced. He's convinced. Because what does he say in verse 46? Of a truth, your God is a God of gods. Problem is, some of us in here, have been confronted by who God is. He's revealed it clear to us. Some of us in here are even convinced that God is God. But the problem is we are not fully surrendered. And so where God may have wanted to stop some of the detours in our lives, he cannot stop them all yet because we have not fully surrendered our will to him, like Nebuchadnezzar. I think God would have wanted to stop some of the fireworks in Daniel chapter 1 or 2, but he couldn't, because Nebuchadnezzar was still resisting him. Even though he was convinced, he was not converted. Oftentimes, the detours in our life's journey is not just because God is trying to play chess with us, It's because we haven't fully surrendered our hearts to him. Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has been confronted and he is convinced. Daniel 3. What happens in Daniel chapter 3? You know, if you look at the history of of, of Babylon, what happens is this. Um, Well, he rebuilds an image of gold. What was happening in in Babylon at that time? And you may wonder, why did he rebuild an image of gold? He rebuilt an image of gold because there was a problem happening in the kingdom is that men were no longer respecting him. All right? Why? Why were they no longer respecting him? Because they've just heard the prophecy where it says, after you comes another kingdom inferior to you. So why are you going to listen to him? Like here in America, you have this great policy where you have a president for only two terms, right? 
I guess great if you don't like the president. <laughs> Bad if you do like him. But I think it's good, it's healthy to change. And no one has the office forever. We don't have that in England. We've had prime ministers that have served four terms and whatever, whatever else. But you only have two terms. Now you've just re-elected. You, as a country, have just elected Barack Obama to be your president for his second term. He's in the first year. He's trying to, you know, flex his muscles a bit more. And he'll still probably flex his muscles next year a bit. But come year two, shifting to year three, you, as a country, individually and through your media, are going to start refer to him as what? A sitting or a lame duck, right? So you say what? You're gone in two years or one year. Why do we listen to you? All our attention is going to be on the next guy. And this is what happened in Daniel chapter 3. There's some historical factors for that. And Nebuchadnezzar, was, there were some insurrections or almost attempted coup d'etats in his kingdom. And so in order to crush them down, he builds a golden image to say that I'm going to rule forever. This is flying in the face of God now. God had said gold, silver. He says gold. So he's in rebellion to God and his plan. Has God, has God finished with him yet, though? You know the story, Daniel chapter 3. And, and, and you know the story, they, they, they set the music up, verses 1 to 6. If you bow down. And you know the story, they didn't bow down. There were three men who didn't bow down. And the word comes to the king and says they haven't bowed down. So the king says, call them to me. And he says to them, listen, maybe you didn't, under, maybe you didn't understand. Maybe because you're Hebrew and we're Babylonian, you can't understand our language. Let me tell you, make it clear. I'll give you a second chance. So he says, I'm going to give you a second chance. And they say, we don't need a second chance. They say, King, we are not going to bow down to the image. They say, our God whom we serve can deliver us. And even if he doesn't deliver us, we still won't bow down. Verse 16, 17, and 18 is powerful. In other words, they're saying our service to God is not dependent on his blessings to us. We will serve God anyway. If he takes our life, we still serve him. If he doesn't take our life, we will still serve him. Whatever he does, we will still serve him. And the king says, okay, I'm going to throw you into the burning fiery furnace. He throws them into the burning fiery furnace, and then what happens? It's so hot that the men who throw him in die. Now, this is in the country of Babylon, which is in the modern-day country of Iraq. And some Bible commentators say that it wasn't a wood fire, but it would have been a crude oil or something like that heating the fire, which is much hotter. Nebuchadnezzar turns around and says, did we not cast three men into the fire? And his men say, yeah, we cast three men into the fire. And in verse 24 and 5, it says, but lo, I see four men loose walking in the fire, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. You know, their faithfulness was so faithful that Jesus came down to sit with them, walk with them. And they walked in the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar was like, wow. And then he calls them out. He says, come out. So they come out. Verse 28. The Bible says, Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and has changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their god. Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, language will speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut down to pieces and the houses made a dunghill because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Is that a powerful testimony, yes or no? Powerful testimony. Now I would suggest to you now that Nebuchadnezzar has been confronted by God as many of us in here have. He has been convinced by God and is speaking to him. And by Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is now convicted. He's convicted. He says, there is no other God that can deliver like this. That's the words of a convicted man. Not convicted like that, but convicted as in convicted. No other God that can deliver like that. He's convicted, but he's not surrendered yet. Some of you here may be convicted by God existing. You may be convicted by God even wanting to work in your life, 
but you haven't fully surrendered yet. And so therefore, the chapters in life keep on going seemingly, maybe, against. Convicted. Daniel 4. What happens in Daniel chapter 4? In Daniel chapter 4. If you've never read Daniel chapter 4 ever, read it today sometime on the plane home, on the car home or something. Daniel chapter 4 was not written by Daniel. It was written by Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel didn't write it. Nebuchadnezzar wrote it. And in Daniel chapter 4, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king unto you, all people, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it, I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has wrought unto me. How great are his signs! And how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion is from generation to generation. That's Nebuchadnezzar writing. Does that sound powerful? Yes or no? So Nebuchadnezzar is now saying, God is a God of gods. His dominion lives forever. What has happened to Nebuchadnezzar from chapter 1, 2, and 3 to chapter 4? Full converted, full surrender. You read down through Daniel chapter 4. And you know the issue. In Daniel 4, verse 10 to 19, there's a vision that he sees of a tree that grows up and is great, and he doesn't know what it means, and there's birds in the branches and animals underneath it. He doesn't know what it means. And then what happens to the tree? Someone comes down and cuts the tree down and leaves a stump. And he doesn't know what that vision means, and so they call in the wise men, and they don't know what it means, and they call in Daniel, and Daniel says, you can, always imagine, you can almost hear him just going, oh boy, I've got to tell the king bad news again. He says, King, you are the tree. You have grown great. You've taken all the glory to yourself. And you're going to be cut down. Unless, he says, you repent. He says, break off your sins. Verse 27. And all these things never happened to Nebuchadnezzar straight away. But it wasn't in verse 29, it says, at the end of 12 months. So between verse 27 and 28 and verse 29, there are 12 months gap. And then what happens? Nebuchadnezzar eats grass like an oxen for seven years. But at the end of the chapter in verse 34, what happens? The Bible says, at the end of thy days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him that lived forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Verse 37, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and he's able to walk in, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. When you read Daniel chapter 4, you're reading the chapter of a converted king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is converted. I believe God works with us all in different areas and in different areas parts in our life. But those four C's of Nebuchadnezzar, he was confronted, convinced, convicted, converted. That is oftentimes part of our life's journey. Conversion in a general sense, then also on every little issue that may come along our way to be, in a sense, reconverted in an area. And sometimes God's detours, as we looked at in our previous presentation, may be because God has something better in store for us. I'm not saying every detour is because you are hard-hearted. We've already looked at some of the reasons. Sometimes the detours are because God has something better. Sometimes it's because we can't see 2020, but we look back and we know God's plan was better. But from the example of Nebuchadnezzar here, sometimes the detours that God took Nebuchadnezzar on was because he was really trying to win his heart fully and Nebuchadnezzar was being resistant to what God wanted to do for him. And sometimes our life's journey ends up being longer than God would intend it initially to be because we may not be recognizing his strength and his power straight away. I pray that we would have Nebuchadnezzar's experience in Daniel 4, in Daniel 1. 
Because I believe God wanted to convert Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 1. But it took him 20, 30 years, or however long it was. It took him four different chapters in the Bible to finally get Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. You may have come here to GYC with different reasons or different motives. But I pray that as you come to this seminar, finding out God's will, ultimately, I pray, as we looked at the prerequisite purity of heart, there is redemption in God's plan for our lives. But I pray that we would all experience true surrender and true conversion in our hearts. The sooner, the better. You know, they say in life, if you go to see marriage counselors and relationship counselors, they tell you that, you know, in a relationship, you should not use the words never and always. Have you heard that? Because it's not true for me to say, Jay, you always smile. See? But that's not true because he's not always going to smile. There you go, look, see? He's frowning at me now. Just like in a relationship when you say, you always do that, you never do that. It's never fully true. But I would say this, and I'll say this now. It is always best to give your life to Christ at the earliest opportunity. Always. However, there is always redemption. Redemption is always there. Let's bow our heads as we close with prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your redemptive power that you wish to show in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would bless each one of us. And you know, Lord, each one of our individual paths. For many of us, Lord, we may have detoured far from where we may have been. But we thank you, Lord, that you still long to draw us back to you. And we thank you, Lord, that there is redemption in your word and in your son. Be with each one of us, Lord, we pray. Whatever we may be struggling with, we pray, Lord, that we may fully surrender our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.